And because I believe something does not, I can believe it with my whole heart, that doesn't necessarily make it a truth. And the truth is sometimes not to be believed. So there are certain things about what you're asking me that really are quite complicated. Today, we're spending time with Stacy London. Yes, you heard me right. Stacy London. You may have seen her in one or more of the 10 seasons that What Not to Wear ran on TLC, across websites in her role as the CEO of the State of Menopause, or speaking on stages as a passionate menopause advocate, seriously sought after style Sherpa, or a trusted advisor to the many femtech brands taking the world by storm. But here's the deal. There is so much more to this incredible human. Stacy is hands down one of the funniest, most brilliant, and complex women I know. The way that her mind works takes ideas and people to places they've never known. It's happened to me over and over again. It's a gift, and it's one that I'm honored to be sharing with you all today. We start, as all of our times together do, right smack dab in the middle of it. There's no towing the water or testing the temperature. It's a full body plunge. And maybe that's part of what Stacy is always up against. When she's in, whew, that girl is all in. And being all in everywhere can be a lot. Some may say it's too much, but Stacy, she's not sure it's even enough. But then do any of us truly know when, what, and who's enough? Let's find out. Oh, Stacy London. <laughs> I mean, like, here's the deal, people. <laughs> Stacy and I had to stop talking because we've already spent 20 minutes not recording this podcast because that's just how we we always start in the middle of a conversation and like we ping pong back and forth and get really fucking pissed and frustrated and also then feel a path and a way forward and inspired and and held so so we're gonna we're gonna attempt to take you on that journey as well and and before we sort of get into the the task at hand i just also want to talk about the fact that stacy is doing this podcast while very very sick because the girl doesn't take a day off would you like to respond to that I, comment? I, I know that this is this is how I know that you're such a good friend, Erin, is because you would actually say to me, what are you doing? Do you want to do this podcast lying down? Now, there are certain things that, yes, when I realize like I am sick and I probably should be lying down. But then there are times where I think, if not now, when? Because I don't know when I have another free day. And though, you know, I, I realize that that probably means I should be rethinking uh, what I'm saying yes to, when I'm saying yes to it, why I'm saying yes to it, which led us into the conversation that we were having before we even got on this podcast about what it means to still feel remnants at 54 of constantly wanting to people please, of never wanting to let people down, of always wanting to be make myself available, not to be likable, but really because I've always thought, well, you know, be there for other people in terms of reciprocity so that when you need something, they'll be there for you. Guess what? Big surprise doesn't work that way. And here I've realized, like, in the honestly, in the last five years, that saying yes to somebody has to be free and clear of any reciprocal obligation that you are expecting from somebody. That is not the way the world works. So if you are going to say yes, there has to be a benefit to your saying yes, 
rather than hoping that the person you're saying yes to will come around and be supportive of you when you need them. That's not how life works. Big life lessons for me. Big life lesson. There is no scoreboard where you move the chip and you say, I did that thing for you. Therefore, you owe me 42 minutes of your time. And then we're going to break even, right? It's not a thing. You, you mentioned the conversation that you just had with a friend about what's enough. Will you share kind of that sort of exchange? What is that spectrum and where do we determine where, like, where the truth lies? Well, there's, uh, that's an incredible question because to be honest with you, what I have really been struggling with a lot lately is the difference between a belief and a truth. And because I believe something does not, I can believe it with my whole heart. That doesn't necessarily make it a truth. And the truth is sometimes not to be believed. So there are certain things about what you're asking me that really are quite complicated. And when I say, I don't think I'm doing enough, am I doing enough? Am I making enough money? Am I spending enough time on the things outside of what I consider to be my career path now that kind of create a a fullness and a centeredness and a satisfaction in my life? Is that enough? What, What does enough look like? What does it even mean? And when I say I don't think that I'm doing enough, it's because I don't believe that I'm doing enough. Objectively, truth, does that, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm not doing enough? Or does that mean that I just think it? And if I could look from somebody else, through somebody else's eyes or from somebody else's perspective, they would be like, wow, your immune system is shot. You're not doing, you're doing way too much because you, how can you be productive if you keep falling down? If you're not taking care of yourself, what does it mean? However much you say yes to other people, you're not giving them the best of you. There's a zillion ways I hate to use this expression to skin a cat, right? There's got to be a better one than that. But I think that it really was very funny because my friend Larissa said to me, I think you're doing too much. And I, I really was so shocked by that um, insight because I, I was like, no, I feel like I sit around thinking and it's so hard to get things done and it's so hard to get people to move the needle. It's so hard to get conversations you know, uh, in place or deals done. And I forget, it's not just me that's having this problem. Like we are living in a very tricky and difficult time. And I will tell you before, just before I got sick, I got so depressed. And I think part of that was because my immune system was uh, shitting down. It was shutting down. But I was like, oh my God, I can't take it. Like climate change. I just found out that an old, old friend of mine, I did not realize has been struggling with geoblastoma for a year. That even Sandra Bullock's partner, who I thought they were so happy and so in love, has passed away from ALS. That we, I had been on two planes uh, within 24 hours to go back and forth to Dallas with the worst turbulence I have ever experienced. And I was like, I am afraid to fly again. I haven't been afraid to fly since I was a kid. This feels like the world is on fire. We've got wildfires. We've got all sorts of pollution problems. China is stealing all of our information. I mean, you know, the war with Russia and Ukraine, like it, it just doesn't stop. Even the fight in Alabama, in Montgomery, I was like, I, this is what it's come to. And, and frankly, you know, I was cheering on all of those people. I was like, take those white people out. That's right. Take those people in their tiny little boat out. Because this is unreal that in 2023, this is the shit that we're still dealing with. And I just started to feel like, what is the point? When I talk about menopause or when I talk about something 
that I actually think is so important that is the threshold of our health span, our longevity, our wellness till the day we die. Why does that feel so insignificant when it's so hard to get through the day, when we have inflation problems and people do not have enough money? We are in economic crisis like we haven't been in a long time. And that's not because of Biden. That is because this is the ripple effect of COVID. Correct. And, you know, we are not lifting each other up. We are, you know, I always feel like it's a den of wasps, a den of hornets that are all out to kind of hurt each other, which we were talking about, has to do with patriarchy and not women helping women, right? As much as we say we pay all this lip service to women helping women, are we actually doing it? And the only way to make women more powerful is to get them money. They need wealth in order to change things. How do we do all of this? Some days I'm just like, it is insurmountable. Like I can just, all I can do is stay in bed and watch Netflix. That's correct. We're going to take a deep (laughs) breath together, okay? In through the nose, out through the mouth. All of that is real. All of that is happening. So much of it is out of our control. So much of it is in our control. That's the complicated piece to all of this. You talk about this a lot. You talk about perspective and how a shift in perspective can completely change your life. But I think also what you're discussing here is this idea of perception, And our perception of what's happening is our reality. That is the difference between belief and truth, Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. that what we feel and think, regardless of of how the numbers add up and how people sort of respond to what that experience is, it is our reality because we are in our own heads all the damn time. And Mm -hmm. so, and so the perception is reality piece. How do we when you think about everything that you just talked through, how do we get up? How do we get up? How do you get up every day and continue to move forward knowing that there is so much that feels insurmountable? Mm, I think part of it is two things that, you know, I look at history and I think, well, you know what, maybe democracy is is not um, an infinite idea. Maybe, maybe it has an end. Maybe uh, humanity is like where, you know, we're, we have so much hubris and really we're just like dinosaurs and eventually we're just going to be eradicated. And I'm like, so get up and make the most of it. It's like live every day like it's your first. Go into it thinking that you are fresh and new with open eyes and like uh, uh, willing to have a new perspective and perception on what is going on in the world in order to get through it. Because there is this feeling. And I remember, you're going to laugh at me, but I was eight years old. And if you can imagine me as a child, my mother really, I, I think if she had could have thrown me in the East River, she would have, <laughs> because I was like, I don't understand how to make life have meaning. Oh, Jesus. At eight. And my mother was like, oh, Jesus, what do I do with this? What do I do with it? She was like, crisis? she was like, well, you're going to soccer practice because I can't handle this right now. Exactly. Yeah. If only because I told her I wanted to be a ballerina. I bothered her and bothered her and bothered her about that. And then we got to ballet class and I looked around and I was like, why is everybody wearing leotards? And the instructor was like, what do you mean? Leotards are what we wear during rehearsal. And we wear tutus for recital. And I was like, I'm out. I only want to teach you. And my mother was like, I, I am never taking you to another class again. Oh so this God, is the child that um, my so mother much. was blessed with. And I said, I don't understand. You know, I, I don't understand. Where does meaning come from? 
And in a really interesting way, my mom said to me, meaning life doesn't essentially have meaning. Life has meaning when you infuse it with meaning. You have to decide what's important, and that's what your value system becomes based upon. You have to look around you and decide what matters to you. Is it your family, your friends, your job? Like, how are you infusing your life with meaning? Life is a shell. And every time I think about that infusion, I always think about that I was getting a shot in the arm of meaning. Put, you know, just get the get get that right in there and take a shot like you would get a vaccine. And it really did inform a lot of the way that I have been able to think about life my whole life. What what gives meaning, shape and force to my life right now? And that has changed throughout the years. I don't think that's a static question. I think the thing that gets me up in the morning is asking that question repeatedly. What what gives meaning to this moment? Because the thing is, we could think about this, right? Like, you know, Carl Sagan, you are here. We're this teeny, tiny, infinitesimal dot in this infinite universe. And now they're talking about that the Big Bang is just a series and a bunch of Big Bangs and that we'll have a Big Bang in another eon and that so on and so forth and so on. How do we find meaning? How do we find purpose? When when you really think about it, like we, we are meaningless. We're these tiny little specks of nothing. But that's because we have to construct what that meaning means in our little corner of the universe, in our little lives. And for me, that has always been surrounded, or at least meaning has always been infused with this idea of what is the concept of self? What does it mean to have and be a self in the world? What does it mean to have your best self? What does that mean to have a higher self? When we talk about all of the things that make us physiologically and emotionally, all the electrical currents that are going on in our brain, what is it that I want, not just for myself, but for everyone around me to be able to experience, to have access to, to benefit from? And that's taken a long time. In a lot of ways, I think that the first half of my life was really about this hero's journey. What is good for me? What do I want to say about me? What is my, you know, how much money can I make? What do people think of me? You know, who am I in love with? Who cares about me? Me, 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 me. And then there is this moment in midlife where all of those values, all of those things, societal, patriarchal ideals that we have been told to hold dear, that we are mothers, that youth is what we prize above and anything else that our, you know, biological use value ends when we are no longer able to have children, um, that the amount of money that we make or who we're married to, all of these things that we've been taught to value in a capitalist society, they expire. It's not that we have an expiration date. It's that those values have an expiration date. And now a pause in the podcast to hype women. Sarah Olin is the mother of all motivators and the CEO and founder of Lumo. Sarah is the ultimate hype woman for working parents. For the last decade, Sarah has supported women in navigating the transition from working professional to working parenthood. She started Lumo with the singular focus of giving women the tools to win at home, at work, anywhere, and everywhere they damn well please. Lumo is the trusted partner of progressive companies committed to supporting their employees through the transition to working parenthood and beyond. Subscribe to the Lumo newsletter at lumoleadership.com for meaningful ways to support working parents in the workplace. 
because supporting employees through this crucial stage in life isn't just good to do, it's good for business. With Lumo, a positive, productive, and prosperous parental journey for employees is not only a possible outcome, it's expected. Back to our show. And that after that hero's journey becomes the artist's way. And what I mean by that is that all of the things that we have learned, all of the ways that we have built up our version of our self, right, whatever self means to us, then becomes a gift that we insert into community, into celebration of others, into society, into the way that we can change the world. I think the whole first half of life is becoming who you are in order to be in service of something much bigger than just yourself. And we start thinking about self as a much bigger organism, a bigger community. And, you know, you can trace that back to all sorts of things. You can trace it back to physics and religion. And, you know, it's funny when I look at sort of the tenets of Christianity, I'm like, well, on some level, they make scientific sense, right? If you're going to talk about quantum mechanics, that everything is actually connected to everything else, of course, you're going to turn the other cheek. Why would you want to hurt yourself, right? Of course, you want to treat others as you would treat yourself because, or as you would want them to treat you, because it's all part of the same thing. And so for me, this, this whole midlife journey has really been about what are we doing not to hurt each other, not to create um, an atmosphere of competition and rather one of collaboration, because that is actually what serves us all best if we just stop to take a look around and realize that. Instead of what we've been taught, now we take what we've been taught and realize we need to apply critical thinking to everything that we've been taught. And the way younger generations have been breaking down all of these systemic structures around race, around gender, around sexuality, it's our job to do that around gender, around ageism, around money. All of these things that we have been taught to only think about in one way, I truly believe our generation is going to change. We're the first ones to really sit down and think, well, wait a second. I don't believe myself to be old at 54. I do not believe this to be a truth, right? And as we're getting, you know, as our lifespans are getting longer, how are we going to think about life in a different way that is not a linear fashion? We are no longer living under the auspices of kind of the structures that were built by the Industrial Revolution, where somebody gets married and somebody goes to work and somebody stays home with the kids and you go to school and you get married and you get a better job and you get a better job and then you retire and you die in Florida. We are, we are, we are reinventing over and over and over again. The average now for, I think, Gen Z is that they will have 12 different careers in their lifespan when we thought we were meant to have one. So there is so much, and of course, because of uh, the te technological revolution, right? We nothing is linear, and everything is immediate. And we are we are as Gen Xers, I think, standing on the precipice of both of those things at the same time. We can remember rotary phones. We can remember appointment television. We can remember where you didn't get news a half a second after it happened. You had to wait until the eleven o'clock news. You had to wait till the newspaper the next day. So time in and of itself is a very different, has a very different perception than it did before. And it affects the way we think of the world versus younger generations. And I think that that is finally catching up to us. 
so that we, we need to take matters into our own hands and think critically about what everything that we've been taught up until this point and the way that we've been taught it based on the technology and the information we had at the time. And now we kind of have to rocket boost ourselves into the present and what we're able to do with the knowledge we have, having had many more days on the planet than younger people. This idea that you, we throw away people as they age, that they're no longer relevant because they're not on the cutting edge of something, is really to throw away so much valuable information, not just for us right now in our communities, but for civilization and humanity. Every uh, society that, that honors older people has a kind of a higher index of happiness and people who live longer in life. So there's got to be some kind of correlation here in the midst of all of this crazy, which was just a lot of words that I just said. It wasn't, (laughs) but it was like, so so here's what I love. Only a Vassar grad would bring up quantum mechanics when discussing (laughs) self-discovery. Okay. Like, just so we're clear, like, you just drop it in there. Like, we're all supposed to be like following and tracking with, with that sort of, that, that thing. Okay. So okay, now you've just gotten a glimpse inside of my head on a daily basis. And this is me with a fever. No, I know. I know. <laughs> Probably why I sound insane. It's why, first of all, it's why I love you so much. It's because, and it's also why you, you feel that you're not doing enough because you actually are considering the world's problems on a daily basis in a way that some people don't. Some people really kind of stay in their community, in their their home, in their house. And they're like, this is what I need to do today. And then I come home and then the day is done. And then I wake up and then I do it again, right? You are a person who feels deep empathy and compassion. You're sensitive. And I I think that the word sensitive gets such a bad rap. I've been told so often by men when I say like I'm sensitive, they're like, don't do that because they're like, I was told that when a woman says she's sensitive, tell her that she's not so that I seem like I'm a feminist. And I'm like, no, no, dude. Oh my God. I'm like, like, dude, dude, I mean, I I covet that I'm sensitive because it means that I care and I feel things and I'm a deep thinker. And so that is why, right? You, You feel so much and those are the people that actually change the world. The people that can empathize on a on a cellular level are the people that change the world. So at the 20 minute mark, we will now begin the podcast as I normally do. I just want to respond to that because I might I'll tell you a funny story. I was away with my family and I was sharing a room with my sister Nancy. And I was like, hey, do you have a hairbrush I could borrow? And she was like, uh-huh. And I was like, hey, do you do you have any toothpaste? And she was like, uh-huh. And she started laughing. And I was like, I don't think I brought enough underwear. And she's laughing and laughing. I'm like, that's so funny. And she was like, Stacy, my whole life, she's three years younger than me. She was like, my whole life, it has been watching you only be able to have big thoughts. Mm. I, you have the big thoughts. And because of that, I have always had littler thoughts. Because there's no room for little thoughts like, did I pack a hairbrush? You're never thinking about the little thoughts. You're only a big thought person. And it really made me laugh. I thought, oh my God, is that true? 
I'm constantly forgetting things way before menopause. I was always forgetting things, but it's because I, yes, because I'm thinking about how quantum mechanics applies to like self and society. <laughs> and she's like, could you give it a rest? She's like, you can you pack some under? fucking undies, girl? Like, look at the exactly. number of days here and pack that number of undies. And you're like, but in the middle of the packing of the undies, I thought about Ukraine. And so then I got exactly. distracted. Okay, so I want to share what I have pulled together as a hype women headline for you. These are two sentences that attempt to encapsulate what the world knows you as, kind of what externally you have been recognized for and seen as. And what we're going to get into is kind of what the subtext is. And so I will read this and I want you to listen and, and then I'll ask you a question. Stacey London is the CEO of State of Menopause, a style expert, menopause advocate, midlife cheerleader, and author of The Truth About Style, a former fashion editor at Vogue and Mademoiselle, an editor-at-large for Shape Magazine. Stacey is globally recognized for her time as co-host of TLC's What Not to Wear, a show that powerfully and positively impacted the lives of millions of women everywhere. What's missing, girl? I mean, not much. I think what not to wear will be on my tombstone. You know, like this lady was on that show. Mm. And in a lot of ways, leaving that show was a real was a real surprise to me. It was a surprise for me to be on television. I had no interest in being on television. I thought I was going to be a stylist behind the scenes, dressing other people for my life. Um, that TV show was a fluke and it was something that changed my life and was a miracle and did incredible things for me. But when I left, you know, that was after 12 seasons, 10 years, 12 seasons. It was a long time and it was a lot to do that show. And on top of that, all of the things that came from it, right? All the spokesperson jobs that I got from Pantene and Dr. Scholes and Woolite and Lee Jeans, working for Access Hollywood, working for Oprah, working for the Today Show. So I did not have a ton of time off in those 10 years. And by the time I was really ready to leave, I just, I felt so burnt out. And because I had said yes to every opportunity out of excitement, but also out of this fear that if I said no to something, that that window of opportunity would close, right? And after 10 years of saying yes to literally everything, I had nothing left to give anybody. And I... I just didn't know that, you know, there there were times that it would have been better to say no. How do you know? Because you never know what the future holds. So when I left What Not to Wear, I really felt like I was leaving a job. I didn't feel like I was leaving the job. I thought I was leaving a job. And I thought, I'm going to regroup and I'm going to figure out what I want to do next. I felt like television was a great medium for me um, and that I would figure out what I wanted to do. And, you know, I spent a year uh, uh, developing a syndicated talk show called The Find, which was like an uh, sort of like The View, very different people from different backgrounds, but it was a shopping show. And it was only to talk about like different products and we were trying different things out. We developed a second screen app so that you could buy them while you were watching the TV. The show got bought, but it never got made, which was like a, a big disappointment. One of a few big disappointments that I've had in my career, I would say, Probably the first really big one um, was getting fired at Mademoiselle when a new editor-in-chief came in. I came to see that as a huge blessing 
And I do say, even though I understand not everybody can afford to be fired, but being fired is an incredible opportunity. And it really is an incredible opportunity because it really allows you to see when, when somebody says no to you, that you have to find your yes. When somebody outside of your control says no, it is your responsibility to find that next yes. And so that's how I found what not to wear. Um, and then I would say the next huge disappointment for me was that I did a talk show for TLC called Fashionably Late with Stacey London. Some people may remember this, some may never know that it existed, but I did that in 2007 and I poured my, 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 my heart, my soul, my blood, my sweat, my tears into that. And unfortunately, the head of TLC left and the new head canceled the show. And again, auspices of right timing. And I learned a lot from that show. I learned a lot about what I wanted to do without really understanding the demographic I was making that show for. Nobody was telling me, hey, you're not, you're not paying attention enough to this audience. You're going, you're, there's a disconnect and dissonance here. So if I'd known that, I think, one, I could have done a better job with the show. And two, you know, I learned about your audiences. Who are you making things for? What are you saying when you're making things for? Who are you excluding from conversations every time you make something that you think is of value who is not being included in that conversation? How are you saying things? I learned a lot from that mistake, but that that was a huge heartbreak for me. Went back to TLC, did another show called Love Luster Run, which I loved. I got to choose that entire crew. I was the executive producer. I loved doing that show. And I did it for three seasons and then they canceled that. And part of the reason was because transformative TV right? You know, that, that the original Queer Eye and, and What Not to Wear, when we started, transformative television was a very popular format. Mm. It was slowly becoming unpopular. And by 2015, I, you know, there weren't a lot of shows that were doing transformative television. If, if anything was transformative, it was much more about interiors or homes or things like that. It wasn't really about style anymore. Yeah. And even the new Queer Eye, you know, look, it changed channels. Mm-hmm. They changed cast. And they, they also, they cast a much bigger net than just being transformative. They took on social topics like homophobia and um, religion and things that were not being discussed before. That's right. Even, even gender roles. Sure. And I think that, you know, they moved with the times in a way that made it more than just transformative television. But I after 2015, felt like I lost my way. In a lot of ways, I didn't know what to contribute to television because my expertise wasn't really what people were looking for anymore. And I guest hosted quite a bit for about a year on The View, but I did not feel qualified to talk about politics in the same way that a lot of people were talking about politics on The View at that time. And they were really doubling down on that. And I was like, well, if you're not going to say let's talk about what these guys are wearing at their debates and whether or not that makes them look trustworthy. I don't really have a lot to offer. Now, since then, I've gotten way more political and I have a, I have a lot more to say yes, about that. Yes, you do. And you, are, and you are a voice that needs to be heard and has a ton of value. You don't have to have a degree in poli-sci or have been a politician in order to have an opinion on this. But, you know, I didn't know that at the time. And I really, I felt very insecure stepping out of my lane as I was known because I thought, well, that's how the public knows me, right? And what wound up happening was that I shrunk 
mm. into myself a lot. I felt very lost and very confused. And then I had, you know, life happen. Things that I was not prepared for, that I wasn't really ready for, that I, that sort of kind of kept cutting me off at the knees and stopping me from finding what was next. And now, a pause in the podcast to hype women. Neha O'Rourke is an award-winning career and energy coach, speaker, and founder of Somewhere in Between Coaching. Somewhere in Between Coaching is a company dedicated to empowering career-driven humans to discover their purpose and realign with their definition of happiness, intentionality, and fulfillment, and bring it to the forefront in ways that advance their personal and professional endeavors. Prior to Somewhere in Between Coaching, Neha worked in advertising, where she architected strategies and campaigns for nationally recognized brands. As a result of physical, mental, and emotional burnout, Neha switched her career to launch Somewhere in Between Coaching. She fundamentally believes that life is too short to be surviving your career and that every human deserves to thrive both professionally and personally. And here's a little personal shout out and endorsement of Neha because she has been my personal coach for the past five plus years, helping me start, leave, and begin again (laughs) my career in entrepreneurship. And so I can attest that she is the magic that she looks to be. Back to our show. And I had this belief in my head that I had made it, right? I'd been a success. And I thought once you made it, you just stayed there. I didn't realize that like people are fickle. The style of television is fickle. Television was not becoming television anymore. Bloggers were becoming popular. I didn't know what a blogger was. I didn't know what an influencer was. And I didn't really move with the times in a lot of ways. I felt sort of like a dinosaur and very ill-equipped to kind of make my mark in public in a way that made sense to me the way that it had. When I got to What Not to Wear, I, I swear to you, physically, mentally, emotionally, I was like, this is what I was made for. This, I have arrived in the place that I am supposed to be. I was 32 at that time. By the time I was 47, I started to feel like I didn't know where my place was. And I, I really at the time thought, oh, this is what a midlife crisis is. You don't know what your purpose is. You lose your meaning. I would look in the mirror. I didn't know who I was looking at anymore. I was like, when did I get old? You know, I didn't recognize myself physically. I didn't recognize my thoughts. And I honestly didn't know what to do. I did not have tools to say, okay, you're here now. You're going to pivot. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. I had to have spine surgery that took me out for a good 18 months. And just as I got better, my dad got very sick and I took care of him until he died in 2018. And that was a blow that I was not prepared for and really kind of just fucked me up. And then COVID happened, right? And during that time, um, I fell in love with a woman. All of these things about my life that were radically changing, losing my dad, finding the love of my life, they were contrasted by this kind of sense of not recognizing myself anymore. Who was I in the world without my dad? Who was I in the world if I, if I was dating a woman? I mean, I spent a year dating her before I, I went public with that. One, because I just wasn't sure what was going to happen. And two, because I, I wanted to make sure that I was giving us a chance without this becoming public fodder for conversation. 
And and that was hard in and of itself, right? I mean, the reason I finally really decided to go public was that it had been a year and I was starting to see rumors. Mm. I didn't know Stacey London had a hot girlfriend. <laughs> you know, I didn't know Stacey London was gay. All of these things. And I was like, well, I, I hadn't been up yeah. until that point. And I wanted to control the narrative of my story. Of course. But it wasn't until COVID that I thought, I've got to figure this out now. Like, you know, the beginning of COVID for me was a relief. Because, not, you know, and obviously that I'm not saying that to be insensitive to all of the people who died during this pandemic, but it was relief at the very beginning before we knew what was actually happening. Absolutely. Because I thought, oh. I need a break. Oh, <laughs> I need a break. And I don't have to prove anything. There, nobody can do anything mm. right now. Mm. It's not like I have to be sitting here feeling stuck because everybody's stuck. And it was like this wonderful pause where nothing was expected, nothing needed to be achieved. And I thought, oh, this is great. The first three weeks, I mean, we drank wine, we made dinner. And I thought, this is the, this is the, the break I've always needed. Yeah. But then after that, I was like, life is going to be very different after mm-hmm. this. And everybody is sitting around with a lot of time to think. And things are going to change. What does this change look like for me? What could this possibly mean for me? And I had already been a beta tester for State of Menopause, which was a, a product brand. And, you know, I was really vocal and very, a very noisy beta tester about what I thought they were getting right and what they were getting wrong with the products. And that's before I really even understood menopause. And during COVID, I thought, well, what is my grain of truth? Like, if I'm not a stylist, if I'm not telling people what to wear, what is it that I'm actually, that I actually care about? What was I doing with styling? Why did I feel like what not to wear was when I arrived home, when my entire soul, my very being felt like I was at home? What was that about? And that was about self. That was about self-esteem, self-compassion, self-acceptance, self-love. And I needed to figure out how I was going to take those themes and redirect them into something that felt new for me, a challenge for me, but that made sense to me. And all of those things that I had watched people struggle with in terms of their style, right? That even giving in understanding how they felt about themselves, I thought, oh my God, the way these women talk to themselves is so painful. They're so beautiful. They're so wonderful. They're so lovely. Why don't they see it? Also, really taught me to have compassion for myself. The reason I was so great at being critical and snarky was because I've been doing it to myself my whole life, right? It doesn't come out of nowhere. And I thought, if I'm going to have compassion for these people, I at least have to have compassion for myself. And here I arrived at this place where I had no compassion for myself. I was struggling with the concept of aging. I did not know why I was having all of these physical and emotional symptoms really is the only way to describe it, issues where, you know, I live in Brooklyn and I was like, I can't walk across the Brooklyn Bridge anymore because I might throw myself off of it. Mm, Yeah. And I thought, oh, it's because I'm not on television anymore. It's because I feel this like loss in my career, this decreased earning potential. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Instead of looking at this personal crisis, the same way that I looked at what not to wear, right? There's a reason that we did one person at a time on what not to wear, because from the individual story and circumstance comes the universal truth. Oof. And when I realized that my individual story and circumstance was about feeling like I had lost my way, 
that midlife had robbed me of all of the things that I had thought to be true about myself, I thought I cannot be the only one experiencing this. And the more I realized that I didn't want people to feel what I had felt, this this feeling lost, this sense of insecurity about who I was, this sense of irrelevancy and invisibility, I was like, well, we've got to do something about that. That's right. And from those circumstances is how I launched myself into the idea that menopause is really the threshold of that stage of life where this begins, if you're coming to it chronologically. It's not to say that people don't come to this early and have early menopause or medical or surgical menopause, but menopause, generally speaking, happens at a time in our lives when we are dealing with such unbelievable societal stressors and circumstantial life stressors when we are physiologically least able to deal with them is a pretty significant moment in time that we need to take a look at. And that is what launched me in the direction I am now. And I became, I acquired uh, State of Menopause, the product company, and very quickly learned that there was no product market fit for the kinds of products that I was selling for menopause. If you are dealing with extreme anxiety, joint pain, insomnia, muscle fatigue, and brain fog, you don't need a face oil from me. That is not actually going to help the problem. Now, yes, of course, there's dry skin, dry hair, dry vagina, dry everything. Right. But was that the crux of what was happening to you in menopause? No. So I closed the company. I closed the product side of this company because I was like, there is no product market fit for a consumer that doesn't understand what is happening to her. When the problems are much more existential than, you know, a a face oil solving them for you. That's right. How do we go about talking about this, educating and advocating for this stage of life in order to empower people, not make them feel more helpless and not make them feel more confused? And that's what I've spent the last two years doing is taking that step back and saying, how do I educate people who don't even know what menopause is? How do I educate people about what how many different things converge at the same time to make you feel like you're having a, a midlife crisis when the crisis isn't about midlife in regards to your personal journey. It's that the concept of midlife is actually in crisis. Mm. We have never created a positive or commercial culture around midlife to make it something we look forward to rather than dread. That's right. How do we change that perception? that belief, that truth. And that's where I am today. That's where you are today. And, you know, you've talked about your frustration of the conversation around menopause being stuck in the beauty category. And because again, so much of that is about conditioning and what we are told women should be and look like. And therefore women think that about themselves, not because it is their inherent truth. It's because it's what they've been told their entire lives and how you've really wanted to focus on the shift of bringing that conversation into the, the health category, right? Which is where it belongs. It's where it deserves to live. It's it's where all of those deeper, more challenging, more significant um, issues and symptoms live. And then mm-hmm. I think where where it continues to go, and it's something we've talked about, is like, it's going to go from beauty to health to wealth. We need to talk about- A thousand percent. Right? We need to talk about how this is impacting women's ability to build generational wealth, how it's impacted their careers, how 
it has destroyed many of their of their trajectories because of again the the lack of conversation around this lack of education and the perception that people have that is incorrect i remember stacy like being 10 15 years younger in agencies where women were in their 50s and the conversations happening behind their backs were they're lazy like mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't hey i wonder if something is going along going on with them physiologically that we all need to support them and and understand and help them through it was they've just lost it right they don't exactly. they, they don't got it anymore we can't trust them in in the ways that we used to and so we write women off and so you know you you are really you're bringing this conversation into into culture in a way that it has never been before it's a part of the lexicon people can I can't tell you how many times I get on calls with women and they say, I'm having a hot flash right now, right? <laughs> and it's like, and, we, do you know how radical it is that somebody would actually even be able to say that out loud? We would never, that, right? Never, never. Like I'm, because in all of these women that I would speak to, you know, who are, who are a decade or so older than us would say to me, well, I was in a boardroom full of men. And I had to step out because I couldn't say I was having a hot flash. Um, I needed a towel and I was embarrassed. This idea that shame and fear surround this stage so much and that we have been conditioned to hide our actual um, experience from those around us is part of the problem. I have a very great friend, Mantha, who has said to me several times that when I was talking, when I started talking about menopause, she said, you're innovating for the darkness. And I thought, what, what does she mean? And she said, you're innovating for the things in life that we keep in the dark because we're either afraid or ashamed of them, right? And fear and shame are the two emotions that stop us from doing things that we need to do for ourselves, usually, right? Those are the two biggies. That's right. That's not that fear and shame don't have a purpose in life, but in most cases, they stop us from doing what what is the most kind of advantageous thing that we could do for ourselves. And she said, by innovating for the darkness, think about it. It's like the monsters under the bed. They're scary because they're in the dark and we can't see them. We have just dreamed them up that they're there. But the minute that you shine a light under the bed or in the closet, you see that those monsters are just dust bunnies. The minute you give light to something, the minute you give clarity to something, the minute you give it shape and meaning, it, it becomes manageable and less scary. That's right. And that's meant so much to me in the last four years, talking about this as if we were innovating for the darkness. Mm. When we talk about our shadow selves or the things that we have to accept about ourselves that maybe aren't that likable, right? Yeah. Women are so worried about being likable. Yes. But this idea that some of the things that we're afraid of actually have huge potential to give us a radical sense of freedom, mm. those are the things that we don't talk and that we're now starting to talk about for the first time. That, that this idea that menopause is an ending is really much more of a transition. As my friend Omashada Bernie Scott would say, a tran- uh, 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 not just a transition, but a transcendence, mm. that there is a radical sense of freedom on the other side of this that we are not appreciating because we've been so busy trying to conform and contort ourselves to be what society says we should be. And I'll tell you, I've experienced that firsthand in the sense that people are like, menopause, you're committing professional suicide. 
you went from talking about something cool and sexy and style and fashion to something that is about like old ladies and dry vaginas. Nobody <laughs> Ew, gross. Uh-huh. Ew. And my feeling was, oh, you're the problem. That's right. You're the problem. That's right. Because you're the one telling me what is cool and what isn't cool, what women should talk about, what women shouldn't talk about. Screw you. Screw you. I'm not going to be beholden to this category. And as much as people want me to stay in my lane, I had to break out of my lane in order to see how my old lane is still relevant. So the funniest thing about it is that I stopped caring about fashion. I didn't even care about what I was wearing. And lo and behold, the more I've delved into menopause and this kind of midlife transition and transcendence and what this kind of ascendancy could look like, I've also started to realize that identity is a huge part of this. And the way that we identify when we don't recognize our body shape, when we don't recognize our hair or our face, isn't about beauty, but it is about kind of having a, a, a sense of control over the narrative of our lives, which brings me right back to how style does matter. How do you want to dress at 50 is certainly not going to be the same way as how you want to dress at 30. And that's not just because maybe you've gained weight or you have body weight redistribution. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe you don't want to show your arms. Maybe you don't love your tummy. Maybe you don't love your ass. Yeah. It doesn't matter. But your taste is going to evolve the same way as everything in your life evolves. Nothing is static. So now I realize that style plays a huge part in this conversation. Yes. Simply because I want women and 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 people, you know, because I want to include the non-binary and gender expansive folks in this conversation. Yes. That their style reflects who they are now, not who they were. And that is another really exciting adventure to be on with people. Yes. So you know, when I start thinking about this kind of 360 idea in the way that we are looking at midlife and the way that we're looking at menopause as that threshold we're about to walk through, I think about it in terms of the physiological, the psychological, the sexual, the, you know, the health benefits of nutrition, exercise, and sleep. But now I also think I include style. That's right. Because I'm like, we have to have a sense of identity that really reflects the kind of self-worth we have now the self-worth that we've earned for now, not the way we measured our self-worth before. And that is a new and different conversation. And just because it's different doesn't mean it's any less valuable. And when you talk about, you know, staying in your lane, people want people to stay in their lane because they are comfortable with what they've already interpreted as an individual's lived experience and perception. When you change That not only means that I have to get to know you differently, it also means that I might be different. And so Mm -hmm. when we think about women's lives as a 12-lane freeway, where we get to shift lanes, and we can come back in and out if we want to, but we don't have to. We can off-ramp if we just need to get the fuck out, right? We can pull over and put our flashers on and say, I got to stop. I don't really know where where I belong right now. We have to stop letting people tell us the road and the path that we're on where we deserve to stay, what we deserve to do with our life. So much of your lived experience, Stacey, both professionally and personally and through your work that is filled with passion, is about a a journey of self-love and and a journey, right? And a journey of self-discovery. And and like the word transformation, when you talked about transformative TV, 
it's also like women go through multiple evolutions and metamorphosis metamor what is the metamorphosis metamorphosis (laughs) right thanks master um like women go through this because we do continue to change and evolve over time we what we we start out as this crawling caterpillar and then we go into Mm -hmm. a cocoon and we we go inside of ourselves and then we reemerge as something completely different as a butterfly that that is able to fly and have a totally different life. And we do it over and over and, and over, over again. It's and so well, right. I, I sorry, I, I I didn't mean to interrupt you, Erin, just to say that yes, I think that the 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 real key there is saying that it happens over and over. You don't go from a caterpillar to a chrysalis to a butterfly once. Mm-mm. We have to kind of remember that this is something that happens over and over, that evolution doesn't stop. Even when you're in the ground, you become a tree, you become Correct. a flower. You know what I mean? It dust to dust. It really does. This gets me back to, you know, science and quantum Quantum mechanics, folks. Quantum mechanics and if astrophysics. This is, if this is a drinking game, this is your third chance to drink at quantum mechanics. That's right. You can take a <laughs> shot right here because, you know, what are we made of? What are we physically made of? We're made yeah. of the same stuff as stars. We are, you know, it is one of the things, I will be honest with you, that I've said before that when my father was dying, I read about astrophysics and quantum mechanics more than anything else. And I found it to be so reassuring because I was like, you can, energy can change form, but it can't die. And I thought that's, that's how I know that my father will always be with me. That's right. It doesn't matter that he's not here in physical form. He could be a pulsar. He could be a tree. He could be an earthworm. It doesn't matter. It's that that energy does not die. All of the things that made my father the wonderful man that he was stay with me because I remember him, but they stay with me because that energy does not die. And that is something that brought me such comfort Mm. in such a difficult time. And, you know, I've I've said this before, that between spine surgery and my father passing away, I was in the throes of perimenopause, having no idea because nobody ever told me what perimenopause was. I had every vasomotor symptom you could possibly imagine, hot flashes, night sweats, rashes, brain fog, insomnia, joint pain, muscle fatigue. I mean, boob pain, low libido, everything you can think of. I did mental gymnastics to explain what was happening to me. And I just assumed it was either that my body was kind of in shock from spine surgery or that my brain was in shock from losing my dad. I had no idea that what I was experiencing physiologically was at a time that I was least able to handle it, least able to. And the things that got me through were things like science and math that made me remember, you know, this is what happens. This is the way life works. And look, it is also hard in midlife is generally when we are saying goodbye to our parents and we are faced with the true reality that we are next. That's exactly and right. I will tell you the two things that have come out of this entire experience for me in the last five or six years, and certainly in working with people in menopause and certainly looking at what the midlife experience could and should be for us, is also what this points to in terms of new industry. I think our relationship to death is going to change significantly that we are changing uh, fear into acceptance. 
We are looking at psychedelics for end of life. Mm -hmm. The rise of death doulas is becoming so essential. There's even a hipster uh, funeral parlor in Williamsburg where grandma can be a tree. You put her in a sack and, you know, you bury her and she becomes a tree. These things, the way that we are approaching and understanding death, I think are changing radically. And death is going to become big business. Mark Mm -hmm. my words. Yep. And the other thing that I see is that, you know, in times of economic uncertainty, as women are becoming, you know, the sole breadwinners in their families or their single mothers, we're starting to see, I don't know if you saw that article in the Times about momunes, mm. but I oh, think yeah. we're going to start to see intentional communities of a very different kind, right? Yeah. These seven women, all yeah. single mothers, bought a house together. They they pooled their resources to take care of their children, to take care of themselves. And that is something that we're going to see rather than retirement homes in Florida. You're right. Um, I think that our our entire attitude about aging and retirement even, which I think is something, you know, that that has been sold to us as the dream, which if you are not retiring with a shit ton of money and a reason to retire is actually going to make you much more depressed and much more lonely much sooner. That's right. These are all concepts that we are reevaluating. And that is going to mean not only big business, but much more purpose and meaning in our lives. And that's what's come out of this entire menopause conversation. So yeah. imagine where we can go from here. Absolutely. And you know, the silencing of menopause that has since the beginning of time, honestly, until the past few years, where it's now a conversation that we're having outwardly and with strength and conviction, that is gaslighting by the patriarchy, right? They wanted oh, they wanted us to feel crazy. They wanted us to feel alone. They did not want us to use our collective power to challenge what was happening, to educate one another, and to create the support that we're talking about here with the communities of women coming together. And so we will continue to do this work to dismantle the the distractions that that we have been faced with over time, where women are asked to be smaller and asked to just be kind of disgusted with themselves as they age, yeah, as they always. grow, always, right? That that like what happens to our bodies should be kept behind the scenes in the darkness because mm. no one wants to know about it. And yet it is the it is the only reason that life life continues, goes on and is created. You know, and I also think this whole idea that like the patriarchy is keeping us down, what what is really at the root of that is also this misunderstanding. Uh, you know, not to just be kind of binary about gender, but just just physiologically for a second to talk about, you know, female physiology versus male physiology, right? Yeah. The way hormones actually behave in two different kinds of physiology. Men, we've only studied men's physiology. I mean, women have only <laughs> been in, in uh, clinical trials, like required to be in clinical trials around physiology since 1993. I can't, I cannot... I Years. can't handle that statistic. Like it makes me irate. 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 So we are diagnosed over, you know, uh, hundreds of diseases four to six years later than men. And yet we live six to eight years later than men. And we are not little men. And like no. the example of that is that, you know, the Ambien uh, dosing was completely wrong for women and, you know, was making them absolutely insane. So, so when we talk about this, it's also that men have no understanding. Like when they say that women are hysterical mm-hmm. or that they, you know, they, you know, whatever, that we're unreasonable or we're too emotional or too sensitive. It is saying that you simply do not understand the hormonal 
physiological makeup of somebody other than yourself. Yes. Not understanding something does not mean you have to control it. Mm. Why they control it is because they're afraid of what they don't understand. How do we dismantle fear Mm. around each other? Right. And, and that is something that I think is a very deep, profound problem that we constantly have. Now we have women angry at being held down by this kind of systemic patriarchy that we did not understand that has taught us to hate ourselves, that is truly based on, on, on male physiological fear yeah. of what they don't understand. How do we stop men from being afraid? How do we stop women from being um, self-hating, yeah. self-loathing? And how do we stop men from putting us in that position by quelling fear and, and introducing acceptance? I'm not sure. I don't have those answers, but it's it's something we don't talk about because we're so angry at this point about what the patriarchy has done yep. to women and gender expansive folks in the way that we are allowed to understand ourselves that we're just filled with self-loathing and and you know instead of self-acceptance and self-love but we're not looking at the at the bigger problem of the the fear that has generated this need for control in the first place that's right how do we quell fear for something you don't understand. It's like we have to all learn a new language to be able to do that. Because, you know, look, I would love for this to be a matriarchal society. I'm not going to lie. Look, men got their shot. Let's, I'm here for let's it. I'm here for it. Fortune 500, all women, swing that pendulum. Let's do it. Let's swing that pendulum for a couple hundred years and see how well we do, yeah, right? Let's see. But let's it's not steps. going to happen. If we're not letting, if people are not going to let go of the power they think they have to have in order to survive, how do we how do we get underneath that fear in order to show them there is a different a way, there's a different way there's a different way it's the same way that the fear and shame have a place mm. we have to understand when that fear is being uh, applied incorrectly fear can be helpful to us yes we can run away from scary things but what if we're afraid of the wrong thing how do we teach that that, folks, is why Stacey London forgets to pack her undies. Because this is what <laughs> this is what she's trying to solve in her head. Okay? Yeah, I mean, all of that, right? It's it's it is just, it's so multifaceted, it's multi-layered, it's so deeply complex. It also, but it starts with us. It starts with us individually and understanding why why we have become the version of ourselves that we've become today how that mm-hmm. transformation has occurred and how that might be happening in another person. Stacey London, we could talk for 200 hours per use. So because I know that even though you're sick, you have a full sketch, we're going we're gonna to wrap with my final question. And, and then I want you to go eat and then I want you to lie down. Okay. So I'm going to say three sentences and you can finish the sentence, each of them individually, with a word, with a couple of words, with a couple of sentences. It's, be brief, London, is what you're telling. Be brief, London. <laughs> be brief, London. Gravity is the soul <laughs> of wit. Okay. Wait, wait, hold on. I feel like we've got like a good shirt. Like, be brief, London, and don't forget to pack them. You know? Right? <laughs> like, something like that? Okay. So, uh, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that it's going to intuitively come to you. And it's where you are right now. And so I want you mm-hmm. to answer, I was, I am, I will be. I was scared. I am confused. And I will be brave. 
I mean, I think it's the truth. I think this has been a very confusing time. I mean, I'm getting more and more clarity. The you know the the further I I throw myself into this sphere of influence that I really have been trying to kind of create. Mm-hmm. But that is going to that 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 still I still fall back on those old fears of um, you know I'm not good enough I'm not pretty enough I'm not you know I'm not young enough I'm none of these things yeah that that mindset doesn't disappear just because I want it to nope. and so I can get very confused and I can doubt myself in a lot of ways but I believe that what I am headed towards is a sense of security and bravery that maybe only can come because I am this age and not before. And it's hard earned and hard won. And that's where, that's what I'm running towards. And we're, we're running alongside you, behind you, or in front of you, wherever you need us. That is my role in your life is to be in okay. one of those three spots. And I'm deeply grateful for your sisterhood and your friendship and the work you do in the world in all of the capacity that you do it. I love you. I love you. Please go lie down. I want you to. I want you to. I want you to lie down. Okay. Just, I want you to I just, lie. Down. I just really <laughs> off ramp, girl. Like pull over with the flashers on. It's time we because we need you here. I think for- my battery said I don't think I have flashers, There's but no, you know what? You know what? Listen, I'm the, gonna call AAA. <laughs> I will. We'll we'll put some of those flares around you. But I think you know again what we. What we've talked about here and what we know is that like you have to pour back into yourself in order to do all of the things that you are here to do in this world. And there is time to do them, but not if you live like it's your last day, live like it's your first. Yeah. And I think, you know, just not for nothing, little plug here, but this is also why I created this immersion with Canyon Ranch. Tell us about it. Specifically, um, this five-day immersion around midlife and menopause you know, that really is to be a comprehensive look at all of the aspects that we just talked about, the physical, the emotional, the psychological, um, the sexual, all of that stuff. Even, even I'm doing style clinics every day. But the reason is because, you know, people are like, oh, five days at a spa, you know, that, that, that seems so frivolous. This is the best money you will ever spend because yep. the entire point of this immersion isn't to give you general information. It is to make it specific to you individually so that you can take all of that information and plug it back into your real life because we don't have enough management tools around what is happening to us that is specific and bio-individual to us. And that's what our goal is with this immersion. If you can do that for five days and that pays off for the rest of your life, I think it'll be well worth your time. It's well worth your time. The ROI, the return on investment oh, is ROI. huge. That ROI on that self-love, you know, it's it, you can't put a price on it, but it's huge. September 19th through the 24th at Canyon Ranch. I'm going to be there. I'm going to figure it out. So I'll be there I and I, I really am going to figure it out. Like, you know what? The kids, they don't need any of the schooling that they're getting. And so we're just going to we're just going to cash that in. It's completely fine. But again, like what women are willing to spend on external things for other people and they are then unwilling to invest in themselves no. is a catastrophe and it is it is it will come back to to really take them down. And so 
we will be there. I hope that those of you listening that can make it happen will be there with us. And we're 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 here for you, Stace, and everything that you do. And just deeply grateful that we're in this life with you. Aaron, I mean, ditto. But I'm so deeply grateful to you. I mean, there is no hype woman that I would rather have in my corner. You're so lucky if you know Erin. And if you don't, you should get to know her. That's all I'm going to say. If you, if you don't know her, Erin is the one person you want in your corner. And I'm always going to be there for you, sis. Okay. Love you. All right. I'm going to lie down. Thank you for spending time with us today. We hope you feel motivated, inspired, and fired up to take on and burn down that patriarchy. We can't wait to see you again next time. Until then, please do your part to hype women. The Hype Women Podcast is produced by Aaron Gallagher and Melanie Scroggins. Original score by Alex Yuan. Please listen, subscribe, and rate our show wherever you listen to podcasts the most.